Thank you, Brian. Yes, some of us have been looking all forward all year to this passage. It's so exciting. Welcome. Hey, a couple things, actually three things before we move into the message this morning. First of all, um, maybe uh, less than a year ago, we had somebody up here um, uh, representing education talking about Arizona tax credits and, and uh, federal tax credits. Um, to be able to give charity and actually have that be a, a, a tax, more than a deduction, but actually a credit against your tax bill. Um, I understand that the IRS has new rules about that, and uh, um, as of tomorrow, that, that, that credit is going away, at least as far as I know on the federal level. I'm not sure on the state level. All I'm telling you is that if you listen to us back then, I'm reminding you of this now, and if, if you're wondering about it, you need to check with your accountant and if you're going to make one of those uh, contributions, I think you have to do it by uh, tomorrow. This doesn't affect the church. Churches aren't eligible for this, but any of your other uh, charities. So, like, I, I, I give money sometimes to alongside ministries as a, as a tax credit. And so I'm going to have to do that by tomorrow if I still want the credit. That's the first thing, just some information for you. Second of all, uh, you know, as Cody wasn't here, I don't know if uh, Reagan uh, mentioned it, but uh, Cody is actually leading in Peoria today. Uh, we do this a lot with pastors and worship leaders. We, um, so he's over there, so he is working today, but um, apparently this is part of the deal to, in order to have Sean Myers come and preach here in November. We had to give them Cody for one Sunday. I'm not sure about that trade-off. I'm a little dubious about that at any rate. Uh, the last thing is, um, you know, John McCain passed away, and I wanted to mention that because I know that in this community, there are a number of people who are related to John McCain who live in this community and occasionally filter in and out of this church. And so I wanted to mention that, uh, just mention that our prayers and, uh, and condolences are with you on the passing of, of Senator McCain, uh, that he was, uh, we just, we honor and appreciate his service to our country uh, and everything that he stood for, agree with him or not, um, he was I iconic in Arizona history, one of two people from Arizona who actually uh, ran for president at one time. So uh, just wanted to mention that as well. Let's pray before we uh, get into today's text. Uh, Lord God, we are uh, grateful for your love and for your mercy. Uh, and also, we have to recognize that, that that love and that mercy calls us uh, not only out of something, but to something. It calls us away from selfishness and idolatry and, and foolishness false gods, and it calls us into your kingdom where um, things are different and that there is a discipline, there is a, uh, there's a reversal of what culture thinks about things. Uh, and so sometimes it can be troubling, but it can also be the most liberating thing that we can go through. And so as we go through this text today and the text next week, uh, we just pray that you'd be with us and that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your truth to us. Uh, and that your resurrected son would fill us with your power and your, your blessing. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'll notice that the passage today is actually verses 22 through 24, uh, but Brian read 15 through 24. And the reason is, is for the same reason I mentioned last week. If you weren't here last week, we are having a six-week running conversation now starting at verse 15 of chapter 5 and ending in verse 9 of chapter 6. And so we rarely do this. We try to make every Sunday stand on its own. But during this six-week running conversation, it is more important than ever 
that you get a hold of a podcast of a, of a Sunday service that you miss in order to stay in the flow. And if you missed last week, you, li- you missed all of the foundational work that we did preparing for uh, what uh, in their day, the first century uh, Greco-Roman Mediterranean world was known as the household code. How do you live your life out in the household code? So last week we looked at the seven verses 15 through 21 and we said this is a transition text. It's looking back at everything that Paul has been writing in chapters 4 and 5, but it also launches us forward into Paul's version of that household code. And the key to last week's um, text, the, the key message, is that we need to be submitting to the will of God because that's where we will find wisdom. Twice, Paul says, and you heard Brian read it, he says, don't be foolish. Don't behave as an unwise person. You need to seek wisdom in order to be able to navigate this dark world. The days are evil. This is a tough world to navigate. You need wisdom. And you find that in the will of God. And by doing so, you will fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. You will live under the influence of the Holy Spirit and not under the influence of anything in this world that might feel good or look right or that the world might promote as wonderful, but ultimately it's going to lead to our destruction. The Holy Spirit leads us to life. A couple of other thoughts about how this all ties together. Uh, Starting in verse 15 and especially 15 through 18, uh, the verb submitting in verse 21 looks back at verses 15 through 18. Submitting is a part of walking in wisdom. Submitting, I know this is hard to understand, but submitting is not foolishness. Culture will tell you that. Submitting to God is actually where we find wisdom. And I'm telling you, this is completely upside down. Is there anywhere in this world, anywhere in our culture, where submission is related to to wisdom? Anywhere. Cultural wisdom claims that we are our own person and we submit to no one. Autonomy rules. Could that be one reason why the world is such a mess? Because we're all doing our own thing, not submitting to anything else. Michelle Lee Barnwall, in her most recent book, writes this. We are obsessed with questions about power and rights, which are not kingdom-shaped or gospel-motivated questions. Thus, we get into arguments about who has privilege rather than who has responsibility to serve. And she makes this statement in the context of marriage, talking about the roles of husbands and wives, both. And isn't that just so true? The minute we start talking about giving up our authority and power, whether it's real or perceived, the minute we start talking about that, which is an act of submission, we just default to start to talk about our rights not our responsibilities. Who's going to say that to me? And who do you think you are? And all of that. And she says the problem isn't a a discussion of who has privilege because everybody wants to deny that they have privilege. And anybody pretty much living in the United States has some level of privilege. And we do that to deflect ourselves from the fact that what the gospel calls us to is not a discussion about privilege, but rather what are you going to do with that privilege? 
What responsibility do you have with that privilege? How are you going to use that privilege that we all have to serve and love other people? I think she hits it on the nail. In other words, the gospel calls us not to turn the world upside down, but to turn ourselves upside down. Matt Smethurst writes this, in a culture of self-expression, self-denial is a revolutionary act. You will, you will create a revolution when you start to humbly submit in all contexts. A number of weeks ago, I've mentioned this before, I just keep coming back to this because it was just a profound moment in this sermon. I was in Oshkosh at a church with my family, and the pastor, Jason Fielder, stated this. If you have never had your mind changed by something you read in the Bible, you are either Jesus or you are in willful denial. Those who claim to be followers of Christ must remember, life in the kingdom is not your own. You were bought with a price. Here's the second thing. Let's define submitting. It's a word with a lot of negative baggage. And, in, and in, the, in the Greek, it is a compound word, hupotasso, which literally means to line up under. But in order to line up under, there is a secondary but essential act or behavior that must accompany this lining up. And that is the desire, the ability, the wisdom to relinquish power and authority that you have or that you perceive you, you have to another. This is a concept that if people by the power of the gospel would embrace, it would be revolutionary. Paul states this, he's, he talks about this in many places, but he states it a little bit differently in his letter to the Philippians, which he wrote about the same time as he wrote to the Ephesians, when he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider everyone else better than yourself. What kind of world would we live in if people really had that kind of an attitude? Now, I, I mentioned that once in a sermon, and somebody walked up to me and said, we'd have a world of gridlock, because if you're at a four-way stop, nobody would, nobody would go, because they'd be like, you go, you go, you go. Okay, let's deflect and deny what the gospel is calling us to because of a four-way stop sign. It was pretty clever, I, I admit that, but, but wouldn't it be revolutionary if we embrace that? And like I said, what does it mean? I want you to get this, I'm repeating it. It means to relinquish to another your authority and power, whether that authority and power is real or perceived, because we all perceive that we have power and authority. And in the case of husbands and wives, it means, here's what's really important, it means that you're relinquishing that power and authority First, to Jesus. To Jesus. You can't skip this step. It's not that you're relinquishing your power and authority to your spouse. You're relinquishing it first to Jesus. Because what follows then is a genuine desire with the Holy Spirit filling you. And Jesus is our example. A genuine desire to pursue what is best for the other and in this case, your spouse, which, by the way, always looks different from husband to wife. Remember last week, very important distinction. Mutual submission does not mean same. Mutual and same are not synonyms. 
mutual submission means that you're going to give up power and authority, but because of who you are, your relationship, and your context, it's going to look different in every single relationship and every single context. It's not about your behavior. It's about your attitude. And then what flows out of that. And that attitude is rooted in giving up everything to Christ. Here's the third thing before we jump into the text. Submitting is an outworking of being filled by the Holy Spirit, verses 15 through 18. And in particular, verse 18, it is an outworking of being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're willing to follow this call and this teaching, however, you know that's really hard. Any act of submission, let alone to your spouse, is going to be a challenge. And so the power to do this is really beyond us. That's what we keep pointing at. It's in the gospel. It's in the resurrected Christ. It's in the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul calls for us to look to Jesus. He says, out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. Look to Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not get drunk on wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't be under the influence of anything in this world other than God, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. I say this about... And I know this is kind of embarrassing for her, especially today. She's going to be in the service. I told her to be in all three, of course, to, because of the subject matter. But um, I will tell you this about Jackie. Jackie loves God more than she loves me. And as a result, she loves me really well. If she were just focused on loving me, she wouldn't be able to love me as well as she loves me because she loves God and Jesus and is filled with the Holy Spirit more than whether or not she's going to love me because it's an outflowing of that relationship. So wisdom and Holy Spirit outworking is found in submission, not in dominance. God achieved victory over Satan, sin, and death through the submission of his son, Jesus. And Jesus said it was for the joy that was set before me that I went to the cross. He did it willingly. He did not consider equality with God, Philippians tells us, something to be clung to. But instead, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his rights as God. He emptied himself of those rights. And as a human being and as God, submitted to the cross for us. And that's why we can do this. Again, I'm going to hit this again. For everybody, there is always a grander submission than just to others. It's to Jesus. Our first submission is to Jesus, and everything else flows out of that. And here's why this is so important. When we talk about submission in the context of just to other human beings, like for a wife to submit to her husband, or here you go, you think that's the only problematic submission text we have? How about in Romans? where Paul says, submit to the governing authorities. That's right. You've got to submit to the government. Oh, they're corrupt and awful. So was the Roman government. It was worse. And Paul was saying, you've got to submit to the governing authorities in the midst of that. But when we talk about it in the context of just to other human beings, we always can find a reason not to submit. We are loophole specialists. 
we're just looking for the exception. Oh, if I can just find that one exception, then I never have to worry about it ever again. What about this? What about that? And it always becomes a kind of a, a you know, a game show. Stump the pastor, okay? Those questions are rarely asked to seek information, but rather to find an excuse. But every time this is taught, it must be taught in light of who Jesus is and what he first submitted to. In other words, we have no excuse, we have no loophole, we have no reason not to. So, to the specific text, and I'm actually going to start at the very end of the husband and wife marriage part. Because if we don't have this as our foundation, verses 32 and 33, we're going to struggle to really truly understand what's going on in verses 21 through uh, 31. Very important to understand 32 and 33. This is how Paul wraps up the husbands and wives part of the household code. He writes, um, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Here's the first thing we have to understand. We talk about Ephesians 5 as the marriage text. How do we learn about marriage? Well, you've got to go to the marriage text in Ephesians 5. By the way, it's not the only one. You, you, there are several places. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, uh, Proverbs 5, 1 Corinthians 7, I would even argue James chapter 1, Philippians chapter 2, all kinds of marriage texts. But the marriage, this is the most famous one. The marriage text, the marriage text. Guess what? In the text, in the marriage text, Paul says, this is actually about Jesus and the church, the groom and the bride. Yes, we find great information about the roles and the calls and the responsibilities of husbands and wives in this text, but it's primarily about Jesus and the church. Paul's not asking you to do anything different than what Jesus and the church has done. Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. The bride submits to the groom. The groom loves unconditionally, selflessly, and compassionately, even when they're unlovable. The bride, the church. You have to look to this first, which also reminds us that in marriage, we're called also to be a picture of the gospel to others. It's not just about getting together romantically. This is a high call. It's a very high call. So he says, this is about uh, Christ in the church. And then verse 33, he returns and he says, however, and he does something he rarely does anywhere else in the New Testament. He further defines something that he said earlier. However, let each one of you, the you there would be the husbands, love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she, what? Respects her husband. This is an important distinction. The, the submission we're looking for, that men are looking for, is about respect, respect and affirmation. Because if you don't know this about men, you just need to learn this. Uh, and I know I'll get pushback on this. But we're basically insecure, fearful, little fallen creatures who are filled with pride and arrogance. And we desperately need respect and affirmation from the person we've chosen to be wife with. Desperately. And if you don't think that's true, you're in a world of hurt. You don't understand. 
Next week, we're going to talk about what wives need, and they need a lot too, but this is what men need. Oh, okay. (laughs) So, to the text. Verse 22. It says, interesting, and I studied hard on it. Look to your own husbands. Okay, that wasn't added by the translators. That Greek word is in there. Own husbands. Why? Well, in verse 21, it says we're to submit to one another in the church. But wives also must submit to and respect their husbands, as we see in verse 22 and and verse 33. But do those submissions look the same? Is a wife going to submit in the faith community the same way that she might submit specifically in context to her husband? And of course, the answer is of course not. Different contexts naturally call for different manifestations of submission. Wives will submit to and respect their own husbands in ways that are certainly different than in the broader community. That's just a fact, and we need to recognize that. But then you get into the next verse, because the husband is the head of the wife. That might be a little problematic for some people. That language there, okay? Well, what does that word head mean? It's the Greek word kephla. You can look it up yourself. A kephla describes when two walls of an entity or structure are coming together in the corner where that corner finds its foundation and its support. That's what Kefla describes. Kefla is not describing me, Tarzan, you, Jane, I'm in charge here. Think about the implications of what a Kefla actually is, okay? A kephla takes on all the weight of the entity and supports it. This is one of the reasons why wives and wives-to-be, you should respect and affirm your husband because he shoulders the great burden of leadership. He's called to a great, great burden in the gospel. Again, Michelle Lee Barnwall. The cultural understanding of head was, what the, was that the head was most important and everyone else had to sacrifice to protect the head. Jesus and Paul turn head on their head and show a path where the head sacrifices for the rest of the body. It, it's what we talked about last week. One of the major differences in Paul's household code uh, versus all the other household codes by the philosophers and the teachers of his day was that there was mutual submission that Paul was calling for in his household code. Not same submission, but mutual. That in their culture, every other household code was about the man, the husband, the boss, the father, having all the submission flowing to him and absolutely none in any way, shape, or form flowing out. He had all the rights. This is different what Paul is calling for in our marriage because it's gospel-centered. And I know, here comes the question. I got it. Here it comes. Yeah, but what if I married a lout who shoulders nothing, who carries none of this weight? What if I married that guy? And if you think I'm just making this up, I get this question all the time. All the time. Okay? So, a couple things there. Probably won't be that satisfying to you, but I'm going to run through them anyway. The first thing we have to remember, the first thing we do have to remember is that you're partly or mostly responsible for that in the first place because there are three billion fish in the sea and he's the flounder you chose. (laughs) 
You just have to live with that fact. You do. Nobody else chose him for you. You did this. You said yes. When he begged you on knees and said, I can change, I can change, I can change. You believed it. Or you felt sorry for him. So, there's the three billion fish in the sea argument. Here's the second one. We are still called to live in honor and respect. Isn't that what Paul says in Romans? Live in respect and honor with everyone, everyone. At work, in your neighborhood, in your church, at school, in your families. We're called to that because of who Jesus is. Call on Jesus to help make it work. And, here you go, be realistic in your expectations. I've found in marriages there are always unrealistic and uncommunicated expectations that then become fodder for excruciating hostility. Have you ever experienced that yourself? Uncommunicated expectations, for some reason, rarely get filled. Maybe because you haven't communicated them. And this idea that, well, they should just know is just goofiness. As far By the way, when it comes to men, here you go. They don't. They don't know. Okay? So don't assume that. But then also there's unrealistic expectations too. All of us need to be more self-aware. All of us need to do much more self-examination. And we need to ask ourselves questions about our communicated expectations to see if they're even realistic. They're even realistic. And then, here's another thing. When you speak to your husband, you speak to him with a, with a tone of respect. Or, is there a tinge of contempt in your voice? Because believe me, men have a contempt detector like nobody's business. We can pick that up like that. Do you speak to him with sarcasm? With cynicism? We pick that up, and it's devastating. Now, here you go. I'll be the first to admit, husbands can use their power to do three things in a marriage. They can abuse, they can withdraw, and they can abandon. And we see husbands do all three of those things. That's how they can use their power. All of those are devastating. But wives, you have incredible power too. It's the power of words. You have no idea how powerful your words are to your husband. Might be that it's like your words are his kryptonite. So the question is, do you nag and try to control? Is that sort of the ethos? not going to go well. So in this text, we can talk about two important things. First of all, this is not only a call for wives to respect and affirm their husband, even when they don't quite see it that way. Is he always respectable and affirmable? No. But we're called to it. You don't see any loopholes in there. Paul doesn't write, when he's doing really well and you like him, respect him? No. But the second thing is that husbands... We need to recognize that this is also a call on us to step up because we bear this burden. And understand, I want to hit this, I'm going to keep hitting a lot of things over and over because they're important. This call for the husband to step up does not let the wives off the hook. That's, that's another deflection usually. Well, he's not doing his thing, so I'm not going to do mine. 
Well, where is that going to end? That's just a negative downward spiral of reactivity that ends in, in total destruction of the relationship. And you're acting like second graders at that point, to be honest with you. Okay? So this doesn't let the wife off the hook. The wife who expects her husband to follow Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to die to Jesus, but never expects the same from herself, is frankly someone that no one would ever want to live with. And believe me, it happens. I have been doing this a long time, and it happens all the time. And we need to remember also, you and I, as individuals, we can never, ever, 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 I want to make sure you memorize enough, enough evers, ever, 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 you and I can never, ever, ever, ever change somebody else. You can only work on yourself. It's the only person you can legitimately work on. You can pray for someone else, but to try to change them, God bless you in your ministry. <laughs> Have a nice fantasy life. I've, I've learned, again, so much from Jackie in this. I've told this story before. Early on in our relationship, how when there's something going on that's bothering her or somebody who is bothering her, her, her first prayer now, as she's matured, and she was mature when she was 25 in this area, her first prayer was not that God would change the other person, but that God would change her heart about that person. That's her first prayer. She's looking for her own transformation before she even thinks about trying to change some other person. And I know some of you might think that's a, that's a weakness of some sort. Jackie's one of the strongest persons I know. I think it takes great wisdom and strength to be able to pray that way. Because most of the time, we just want to pray for our problems to go away, even if that means a person. The very, let me tell you something, the very best counsel I have ever received about being a pastor is that if I want to affect change and transformation in a congregation, I have to deal with myself. Right here. I must first work on my own transformation through prayer and the reliance on the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not me who affects the change, but it's, but it's the Holy Spirit. If I think I can affect that change, that's a fool's errand. You hear about pastors getting burned out? I would argue it's a lot of it is they're trying to do everything on their own power and not the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would argue, a little disclaimer time, that submission here is not expected in situations of physical, sexual, or emotional abuse in the sense that submission would command a person to go back into a dangerous environment. We've never done that. It is possible to live honorably and, respectable and still, uh, respectably and still uh, protect yourself at the same time. That is possible. We, we make those arrangements from time to time. But could we also be respectful and realistic about what constitutes abuse? I've dealt with this, too. A, here, a disagreement is not abuse. A difference of an, of an opinion is not abuse. Oh, I'm traumatized. Now, let's talk a little bit about what this might look like. But before I do, again, I know the questions. Here, here it is, or even the objections. Here you go. Well, Frank, you're a man. Thank you. Uh, you're a man. Why do you get to talk about this, and why should I listen to you? Here's the reason. Because I am a man, and I know what's important to men. That's why. 
for the same reasons that women have been clamoring for decades for men to listen to them when it comes to women's needs, you should also listen to a man when it comes to our needs, particularly one who's been doing this for a long, long time. And I know all the, all the trap doors to this. I have a lot of experience with this. So here we go. First of all, look again at verse 33. This idea of respect and affirmation for the man. Okay? You, you really need to begin to understand how important this is to men. There has been uh, research done on this for decades. The most important emotional needs for men in romantic relationships. Almost everybody says sexual fulfillment. Actually, it's not. That might be 1A, but it's not. Number one is respect and affirmation. Teaching communication at Paradise Valley Community College to college students. These 20, 21, 22-year-old hormonally charged men will all tell you the exact same thing. Respect and ad admiration is the most important thing to them. This is hugely important. Second of all, a lot of this is more about attitude than action. More about attitude than action. Everybody wants to talk about behavior. What this is getting at is something much deeper. So if you have a stubborn, contemptuous, critical attitude, please understand that's not sustainable for anyone in any relationship, let alone marriage. You're digging your own hole at this point if you're contemptuous, you're stubborn, you're critical all the time. Verse 24 says, Submit in everything to your husband. I get this question a lot. Well, give me an example of Jackie submitting to you when you said she needs to do something and she said, okay, I'll do it. Okay? I, I don't know that I could. I've thought about this a lot. I don't know that I could. We don't have a relationship where I bark the orders and she does exactly what I tell her. We just don't because that's not what this is about. But I can tell you that her attitude, her attitude in life, which is all about her being a gospel-centered person, is that she's, she's one of grace, of service, of helping, of joy, of strength and perspective. And she's pretty easygoing and non-critical, yet gently respectful and honest about what I suck at. Yes, she is a strong woman. And she's strong enough and willing to correct me when I need it. And I need it. But the way she does it is respectful and disarming. And here's a big thing. It's never in front of anybody else. That's the cardinal rule right there that women violate all the time, I hate to tell you. All the time. And here you go. She's usually right. But here's the thing. She also knows how to pick her spots. Jackie lets go of way more than she ever brings up. And I mean lets it go. Lets it go. She doesn't avoid it and harbor it. That's a problem. She lets it go. She releases it. And I know she lets go of a lot. 
What that does to me is that it makes me really willing to listen when she does step up. When she starts a sentence with, hey, Slick, we got to talk, I know I need to listen. Okay? Here you go. If everything is important to bring up and wail about, then what? Nothing is important. And eventually, you're not going to have an audience. And you know what else that does to me? You know, hear me, wives. Here's what it does to me. It makes me want to be a better husband and father, the way she handles it. It calls me out to something good and better. And that leads to the next point. You have no idea how important methodology is here. Men hear and see disrespect even when you don't think you're being disrespectful. The number one excuse I get from a wife when the husband is like, she doesn't respect me. No, I... It, it, it's not out of, I'm doing this because, what? I love him. But you're doing it in a way that he doesn't feel loved. He hears disrespect and dishonor. You're not going to get an audience when you do that. You, you can study some of, some of John Gottman's stuff. On, he's been doing this research for decades. You can study some of his stuff. Look him up on the internet. There are ways that spouses, and in particular women, can speak to each other where there's that edge of contempt that you may not even realize you're, you're, you're tainting your communication with, but guys can hear that, okay? That, that, that little bit of content, or here you go, teasing that's not really teasing. Teasing that's not really teasing. Or those sideways remarks. You're walking into... Um, a home for the first time, somebody's invited you over, and as you walk in, she's like, wow, this is a nice house. Do you understand what your husband hears when you, when you say, I know, an innocent remark. Be careful of your messaging, especially with, if it's within the context of, of contempt and teasing that's not really teasing. So you may want a better husband, but it's also fair to say that most husbands would appreciate a wife with more self-awareness. I talk about this a lot, maybe never he in here, but with couples and premarital, I, I do. We go to Fashion Square, and I'll sit around in Fashion Square, and I'll watch couples. And I'm always shocked at the number of women who are willing to chastise, correct, or complain to their husband-slash-boyfriend in a public space in front of other people. It's just stunning to me. And I've never done this because I don't want to get beat up, but um, I, I've, I've thought about going over there and asking the woman, Can, just come over here just for a second. I just want to tell you something. Okay, listen, I get it. He's a man. He's probably wrong. I get that. I'm a man. I understand all of that. You're right. He's wrong. But you need to understand, doing that here, where he's wondering about other people seeing this, no matter how right you are, you're just making it worse. He won't listen to you. And he'll resent you for doing this in front of other people. That's a big, big deal. When you start that sort of semi-public harangue, he's shutting down. All of his filters are up. Just know that. It's just wasted words. See, this is not... I want to make sure I get my deal, but I need to make sure I'm doing my deal. And if your marriage is one of an aggressive wife and a passive husband, 
your marriage is just not sustainable. It just isn't. There's no joy in a marriage like that. There's no opportunity to thrive. Husbands who have given up, and there are many, husbands who have given up will never satisfy the needs of their wife, no matter how much she complains about it, and they're also not honoring Christ. And a wife who simply cannot allow her husband the respect and affirmation he needs will eventually find that they are living with the monster that they have shaped and formed, the monster of apathy. Why won't he do anything? Why doesn't he care about anything? Look at your role in that. Again, this respect and affirmation thing is so important but I want to also remind everybody, it doesn't mean that you don't get to have your say or that you must avoid confronting and correcting poor behavior. But how you do it is way more, more, way more important than why you do it. You can be cl- completely correct, but he can't hear you because of the way you've chosen to go about it. You need to practice empathy. And it's interesting because this actually does go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We'll see that uh, next week as well. Paul has Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in his mind as he writes this. Um, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, when God is pronouncing the curses and he comes to the woman, here's what it says. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Topic for another time. But then he says to the woman, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. But you need to understand exactly what's going on there. Now that they have destroyed perfection in paradise, now that uh, hiddenness and power and, and trust have become issues when they weren't before, now that that's happened, here's what's going to happen. Men, generally speaking, are more physically powerful than women. That, that means that we can use our power in abusive and destructive ways. And the way a woman is going to respond to that is her desire will be for her husband, her husband's power. But he is going to rule over you. That's what happens without the gospel, ultimately. And here you go. Well, he doesn't rule over me. I'm in charge in my house. That's one way that he's ruling over you. I hope you understand that. Some men, through their power... They just withdraw and give you everything that it, that it appears that you want. And then what do you do? You start complaining about how he's not doing anything, he's not leading, he's not strong. There's no way to win this struggle unless you have a gospel attitude about this, which starts with wisdom and is manifest in submission, giving up power and authority to Jesus and allowing that to rule your life. If we do this well, today and what we talk about next week, we have taken huge strides in undoing this curse. Sorry, back there. In undoing this curse. It's through the gospel. It's through Jesus Christ. Finally, last thing. Some of you have gone through this with me uh, in, in uh, private times, but I think this is great for everybody to help you understand um, and even though you maybe didn't have these discussions before you got married, I do this in premarital counseling. It's one of the things I do. Um, it's never too late. 
understanding why people get together romantically in the first place, I think is helpful for us to understand marriage. And, and it's called attraction theory. And there are four factors in attraction theory that talk about how people get together romantically. Those four factors have to be in place. The first one is proximity. It's really difficult to marry somebody that you're not in proximity with. And I know that digital communication, social media, and all of that has modified this some at some point. But the reality still remains. Sooner or later, you have to be in the same room at some point in your relationship. Okay? So proximity. That's why so many romantic relationships start at work or school or wh wherever you're in proximity with others. Okay? The second one is similarity. Now you're in proximity with someone and you find out that you have the same interests. It's called affinity. It's C.S. Lewis uh, talking about friendship. Fr the, es the essence of friendship, he writes, is when two people stand side by side, look at the same thing, are stirred to the same passion, and then look at each other and say, really, you two? Okay? So similarity, you, you, have s you hold things in common. Oh, you connect in that way. The third thing is reinforcement. I think a better word is affirmation. You're in the same place. You find you have something similar. Now you're affirming each other. You look nice today. That's a really good thought. I appreciate the way you handled that. Blah, 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 whatever. You're hot. I, it doesn't matter. Okay? Now, now you're reinforcing and, and giving affirmation. And then the fourth thing is that uh, your personality and the other person's personality, they're, they're complementary. They click. And you find them physically attractive. Now, I know there was an entire office episode about um, whether a physical attraction was subjective or objective, and it, they, they divided right down the line until Michael came in at the end of the episode. But I would argue that it's subjective. The reasons we find somebody physically attractive uh, are often inarticulable. We can't even def say why we do, but we do. But that happens. So you get together romantically. You're, you're around somebody. You find you have affinity with them. There's, there's affirmation, and you love their personality, and, and you find them physically attractive. Well, something's going to happen, right? So you get together. Here's the problem. We never say this out loud. We hardly even ever talk about it. But those four factors, uh, in and of themselves, are not enough to sustain a romantic relationship. But we want it to, because this stuff feels good. It, isn't it, those early parts of those romantic relationships, isn't it just so exciting? You have those feelings, and, and you know, you're floating through the meadow with your hair flowing, all that. Oh, I'm in love, you know, all that. But all of that's not sustainable. And what we refuse to do is look at the potential differences that we're going to have down the road that could cause fractures. So I'm just going to give you the six categories. We don't have time to talk about it. I'm just going to give you the six categories to whet your appetite. But you need to talk about these things because they all become issues at some point, some more than others, but they all do. So here's the first one. What are your roles and responsibilities going to be in your relationship? It's stunning how often people don't talk about that. And then they get into the relationship, and it's ma been made permanent, and they're like, I didn't know that I was living with somebody who didn't want to take up their role and responsibility in this. That's a problem, right? It's a nice hello after the honeymoon. By the way, each of these six things, same category, but two sides of, of the same coin. Roles and responsibilities are different. You need to discuss both. Here's the second one. 
love and affection. Those are two different things. The, the, the love here refers to the actual physical act of lovemaking, what, what, what Willard Harley in his book has described as the special event. Okay? But the affection is the environment, the ethos of the relationship. Isn't it difficult to have the special event without an environment of affection? You need to work on both. And they're both important. Here's the third thing. Money. Managing it and debt. Who's going to manage it and why and how are you going to do it? What are you going to do with accounts? What are you doing with retirement? What are you doing with insurance? Who's paying the bills? And then, what's your philosophy on debt? If you have somebody... Um, you, you have a couple get married. One of them believes that you should accumulate the cash before you buy anything. And the other person believes that the best way to live is to just pay the interest payments on your credit card. That's going to be a problem. Okay? The fourth one, children and parenting. Children, are you going to have them and how many? And then, once you have them, how are you going to parent them? Because you really need to be on the same page on that. Fifth, in-laws and extended family. Two different animals. And both can be problematic. I will tell you, this is maybe the biggest struggle that Jackie and I had. Because I came from a family that didn't value family. She came from a family that highly valued family. First couple of years we were married, I took her on vacations to really nice places, but we were alone. And she finally just told me, you know what, I'd really rather, I'd just really rather fly to Minneapolis and stay in the basement of Uncle Henry and Aunt Edie's house and just hang out with my cousins. <laughs> We've both learned a lot in that. And then number six, religious devotion and practice. Do you even believe the same things? And if you do, do you practice them the same? Are you going to go to church together? I'm stunned always uh, when I meet a couple and they go to different, they're married and they go to different churches. But it happens. It happens. It's a problem. This is all rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to remind us every week that we do all of this for one reason and one reason only. What Paul writes in verse 21. It is out of reverence for Christ. He had all the power and authority to reject, reject submitting to the cross. But he did it anyway. That's the picture of submission. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, this is tough stuff, I know, but it's also tremendously freeing if we would just find our identity in you, our power in you, and live for you. And so, God, that's my prayer this morning, that we would do that, all of us, in whatever context that we are in, in every relationship that we're in. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.